Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Sarah McElroy, former chief marketing officer turned journalist who is on a mission to uncover how women make bold career moves. She is the founder of Raise to Rise, which is amplifying the powerful voices of women from the great resignation. Sarah started her career as a journalist for a local paper in Gillette, Wyoming. She then moved into public relations and marketing and was involved with brands such as Frisky's Cat Food, Red Bull, Cold Stone Creamery, and Applebee's, among others. She also did a stint as a press assistant for Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming, and she was a marketing specialist for the Prince George's County Maryland Parks and Recreation Department. She then spent several years working for the IHG hotel chain and working on a PE-backed wellness concept before launching into her current work. Sarah earned her bachelor's degree in journalism and mass communication from Arizona State University and her MBA from Georgia Tech. She also did some coursework at USC and Johns Hopkins, and she lives in Boca Raton, Florida. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, JR. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to get a chance to meet you and hear about the work you're doing. So tell the audience about Raise to Rise. Yes. Well, Raise to Rise is a journalism project and movement amplifying the powerful voices and stories of women from the great resignation across diverse ages, walks of life, industries, and career functions. So really the idea is to capture what women are experiencing behind all of the statistics that we see splashed across the internet all the time. It was like, I was a journalism major for me as I'm seeing all these numbers and I'm having my own personal experience with the Great Resignation, not once, but twice. Right. It was like, these are stories. Every data point is a story. And I wanted to find out what other women were experiencing. Yeah. So you mentioned you speak from a position of personal experience, not once, but twice, having hit overload and I know dramatically affecting your health. So describe what you were doing before that time and just kind of what led to that pivotal moment of burnout for you. Well, my first great resignation class of 2021 came in April of that year. And I was a chief marketing officer at the time, a small company, but private equity backed, scaling nationally. So a lot of pressure. And I was really proud. It was the perfect on paper job that I had always wanted. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to prove my salt. It's worth my salt. Like I am the youngest member on the executive team. I'm treated as a kid's sister, sometimes even worse than that, if I'm really honest. And it was like, I need to show them that I deserve to have a seat at the table here too. I was hired for a reason. A recruiter right. from an executive search firm came to find me for a reason. So I have all that pressure to 
really perform, outperform, honestly, at work. And then I'm also juggling an executive MBA program at the same time. And between the two of them, to keep all of the plates spinning, I am not every single day, but at times clocking up to 20 hours of work per day between the job and the school program. And it was one of those things where I just thought I had to hold on through graduation I got the job in July. Graduation was in December. And I'm thinking, I can do this. It's five months. It's going to be pretty terrible for a while, but it's going to be okay. And it, my body was telling me that it wasn't. I'd actually had an episode of throwing up blood about a month before I started that job. And that was born out of working on the COVID response team for a global hospitality company. And they furloughed seven of the team members, just my boss. And we were the only two who were still on and working during that time. And it was like one of those things where you're grateful to have the job and the work and, oh my gosh, but I'm like, oh man, everybody else is getting furloughed. I'm the one person who's in the MBA program right now with the extra hours. I don't know how I'm going to do all this. So that was where it actually started building. And then it just continued as I got into that new culture. Then in... January of 2022, I had a second episode and I'd already graduated at that time, but the damage was done as far as my stress levels being really high. And then finally in April, 2021, I had shingles that hit. And that was really my wake up call moment of like, okay, no more. This is unsustainable because I was sitting in the doctor's office and I was diagnosed and I was overjoyed when the doctor told me I was going to have 10 days off from work for shingles recovery. And it was like, oh my God, this is so amazing that I'm going to be able to hit the pause button. Nobody at work can say anything about it. And again, because I'm the kid's sister, I don't want to have to tell anybody I'm struggling that much. I don't want to have to raise the white flag. Like it's a socially acceptable reason for me to slow down. And I just, I look back on that very lost and confused version of me. And I have so much compassion for her. And I'm also really proud of her too, because that was like, Sarah, okay, this is like, clearly this is not working. We have to do something different. So that's when I decided to hit the life reset button completely. I found a new job. I moved down to Florida. I'm close to the beach down here. I even went to Peru and did like a wellness retreat and explored holistic healing modalities, like anything. I was just desperate to feel better. And then down here, I started cutting back on hours and being better about self-care, but ultimately found that my burnout wasn't completely healing for other reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about here. So yeah, it's been a heck of a journey for sure. Yeah. So then you kind of switched gears and you started focusing on talking to other women who've kind of hit this point of burnout. What do you think it is over the last few years that's led so many people to rethink where work fits in their lives? Well, I will say, actually, it was not after that CMO role. It was the job after that, that really was the genesis of this project because I came down into an organization that had a really toxic, misogynistic culture. In my mind, burnout was overworking. Burnout was not really culturally related And so even though I am working normal hours, I have better boundaries than ever. I'm doing yoga and meditation and all of the things. And I'm like, it's not completely healing. And I can't figure out why, but I was dealing with a situation of some sexually harassing comments that were not addressed for Hmm. months. And so finally, when they did an investigation in January, even though a member from HR had heard one of the comments in October, 
And I had to fight for an investigation. It was such a performative farce of an exercise, at least in my opinion. And there was nothing new coming out of it. I got back the readout. The woman put an hour on my calendar for the readout of the investigation findings. And she read back to me what had clearly been run through legal, 10 bullet points, because it was a lot of boilerplate. Like we have a professional workplace that ensures respect of everyone and open door policy and this needs to be confidential and stuff like that. And that was like a big chunk of four minutes. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is just to get y'all off my back. Because with the OC, what I came to find is like, because they did an investigation, it doesn't matter that there weren't real outcomes or true accountability. It doesn't matter how long it takes. As long as they do an investigation, that's it. And they say that they've done it. The OC was like, there's nothing to be done with this. So that's what really inspired me though, to talk to women because it was like, I cannot be the only one knowing there are millions of us right now as part of the great resignation, men as well, but like women too, and women are leading the great resignation. I can't be the only woman experiencing these things, getting mired in these spin cycles of burnout and toxic cultures and things like that. And so I was just like, I'm going to talk to women. And now come to find out, like as studies have come out since then, that was end of January. We now know from a Deloitte survey in April that 50% of women, they studied, did a survey of 5,000 women around the globe. 50% of women intend to quit their jobs in just the next two years. But on a five-year horizon, that number skyrockets to 90%. Only 10% of women plan to be with their current employer in five years. And then the Women in the Workplace report from McKinsey and Lean In for this year just came out a couple of weeks ago and found that women leaders are quitting at the highest rate they've ever recorded at 10.5%. And to put it at scale, they said for every female director being promoted into senior ranks, director or above, there are two walking out the door, which the Lean In CEO says, like, this is disastrous because we're mm-hmm. going to have a pipeline problem now. Oh. Already, we yep. know that there's not equal representation in leadership. And then if two are walking out for everyone promoted, this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Did Deloitte study happen to measure men's likelihood of moving jobs in two years, five years? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, people are changing jobs more regularly in general. And I just wonder how the data would compare across genders. Yeah, that's a great question. No, it was specifically for women. It seems though, I guess we can kind of extrapolate out that McKinsey did another study in July of 13,000 workers, both women and men. And that came out to 40% of individuals intending to quit their jobs. Actually, in the near term, it was like in the next three to six months. So my guess is that it is probably a bit lower because also the Women in the Workplace report found that the gap between women leaders walking out and men is the biggest that it's ever been. So my guess is that probably does tie back if you were to do that study just for men too. But great point. It would be fascinating. No, it's a, you're right. It's an unprecedented time of reevaluating and reprioritizing and right-sizing careers in our lives. Yeah. There was, I think just in the last day or so in the Washington Post, they did a profiles of eight people from the great resignation. So hunt it down if you haven't seen it. I haven't read it yet. I opened the article really hoping that it was a quantitative research survey because the question that I keep wondering in all this is where are all these people going? Because the vast majority of people can't just up and walk away from the workforce. Right. They need an income. And are they going to something else? Are they just taking time out? What are they going back to? That's the piece that to me still isn't very clear about this whole thing. Yes. I totally agree that I've not seen 
good aggregate data on that as well. My guess is that we'll start to see that probably next year in a look back and a retrospective. But Sarah's research from my data points and the women that I've interviewed, I've actually not even interviewed a woman who has completely stepped out of the workforce at all. They're either doing their own thing, and it could be even that some women, the ones who are spending more time devoted to childcare, they're still doing a little bit of work along with care of their kids. They're either doing that or they are switching corporate roles. I probably have an equal breakdown of women who are doing their own sort of gig and women who are switching corporate roles. So I think that's an interesting, it's like an interesting misconception that when you hear great resignation, the way it's trade is that people are just completely stepping out of the workforce. But I have not found that to be the case with the women I am speaking to. But I hear what you're saying because some people did pause and we do know like the numbers don't matter. There were people out of the workforce for a period of time. And like with women at one point, it was up to, I think it was back in February, there were still a million women out of the workforce. And the hypotheses around that were more around like childcare, lack of having those safety nets that we had pre-pandemic, those had still not really come back completely. So it was more in line with that because the Women in the Workplace report from 2021 found that one in three working mothers were considering either downshifting or or leaving the workforce entirely. Yeah. What are the other, I mean, you've talked about a few of the challenges. I mean, sexual harassment, sadly, has been around for a long time. Toxic work cultures, misogynism, around for a long time. I mean, the daycare thing is certainly one thing that you hear an awful lot about, that the pre-pandemic daycare system has not come back. And so people are struggling with daycare options. From your interviews, what are the other things that you hear from women about the particular challenges that they've faced and being placed and happy in the workforce? Well, it's all of these things that, and that's what's so interesting is that it's been this perfect storm of a confluence of factors that have woven into this just kind of like crazy upending of the workforce that we're seeing. It is very much burnout. Women are reporting uh, over 50% of women are saying like from that Deloitte study, over 50% of those women were saying that they're experiencing some level of burnout and they rated, I think it was 40% of women said that their mental health was either poor or very poor. Mm. So that's part of the situation. Definitely the toxic cultures that really came to bear in the women in the workplace report that came out a couple of weeks ago, where women are talking about like microaggressions, discrimination being passed over for promotions. It's even like office housework. I'm the woman and I'm just expected to order the lunches. Like the kind of the same old that we knew was happening pre-pandemic, but it didn't grind our gears as much as it does now. After this time when we had, everybody had this elevated collective level of stress, we lose our safety nets. We're still expected to show up and perform the way we always have, if not more at times with some organizations that kind of rallying the troops to get the company through the pandemic. And then you have like all the extra slack that women are picking up at home. And it's just like, that is too much. Yeah, It's too much for everybody to do. Yeah. So you've talked to... 125 women, probably more by this point, some of whom you describe as are making bold career moves and you've tried to get underneath that. So what have you learned so far? Well, so the way it's expanded is that it started out as the great resignation and just great resignationers. But I've also ended up talking to women who made bold moves in years prior to, because what I came to realize is that this has been bubbling under the surface for a long time but that the pandemic and these conditions 
that really brought a light, like the bright light of crisis showed the frailties and like the cracks and fissures in our systems, basically. And so these things have been bothering people for a period of time, but we didn't have that same sort of opportunity to pause collectively and stop on the hamster wheel, almost like have a short circuiting of our systems that happened during COVID lockdowns and everybody's got to change and figure out how to work from home or do things differently, et cetera. And it became that we started looking at people around us, not knowing if our family and friends are going to make it through. If we are like, if you think back, it's a weird thing to say still, right? But we forget that's the way it was in March, April. Like we were really not sure what was going to happen. So you look at it from the standpoint of like, we start to have this awakening and realization that life is super short. And maybe some of these work rules that we've been taught, like for example, I have to go into an office five days a week. Maybe that's a little more arbitrary than I thought. So that questioning that we're able to do as we start looking outward then becomes internal reflection of those same questions. Like, is this making me happy? Is this how I want to spend my time? And I really think it's a right sizing of work, at least with the women that I've talked with, because they still want to work. It's just they want to not have their career have to be the epicenter of their lives, which was the expectation before. It was like career Mm -hmm. here, and then you fit everything else in around it. Oh, and make sure it's compartmentalized really neatly because we don't want to know about it. Like we don't need to know all the things you have to do as a mom and stuff. Like we show up as your professional self and check your personal baggage at the door. And it's just been just such a fascinating thing to see all of these women kind of coming to this realization of like, I don't want career in the center anymore. I want me and my life and my family, what matters to me, my values. I want that at the center. And then career can be over here. It's an important part if it's a hub and spoke sort of a thing, like the spokes coming off of it, but it's not going to be the center of my universe anymore. Yeah. Do you feel like the things that you're learning from your conversations with women are also applicable to men? I do. I do. Yes. It's a great question. Now, What I think is that there are societal expectations and things that women have been taught from a conditioning perspective that have made it more difficult for them in this situation. For example, if like women are bearing more of the responsibilities of caretaking at home and housework, which that's what the 2020 Women in the Workplace report found that women were spending on average an additional three hours per day. It's about 20 hours per week in holding caregiving duties. And the study the next year found that number held true and that men in the household, or they were three times more likely than men in the household to be doing that extra work. So it's like with all of those kind of extra expectations, they do create a bigger pressure cooker. But I absolutely think that men are having this same awakening too, as far as like, do I just want to be a cog in the economic wheel? Or is there more for me? Like, what are my values and priorities? You mentioned earlier that you have to be in the office five days a week. What are some of the other things that you think are kind of untruths or fallacies about how sort of generally believed we should approach our careers? Well, if we look at the way that we were taught to approach our careers to begin with. It was really the conventional playbook is find the one thing when you're in your teens that you're going to do for the next 40 years and commit to it. And it really should, for the most part, be anchored in 
security and stability and like climbing the ladder and chasing fancier titles and bigger paychecks. And like, that was kind of like the conventional playbook for careers. But if we think about it, I did a podcast recently for this awesome woman who has created a podcast for young people and their families to listen to together. It's like all the things that she wishes as an immigrant growing up here in the States that she had learned Mm. as she was a kid, but she didn't learn until she was an adult. So she's like, let's do this as the first mentor podcast and share this with kids or young people and their families so they can Mm. learn these things now. And it's like, So crazy to think that before our prefrontal cortexes are fully developed, which is where we are getting executive function and behavior and personality, that we would ever be able to figure out what we want to do with our lives. And then I just think we set ourselves up for failure in not allowing careers to be more of a journey and like, honestly, like messy and sort of circular at times, like This idea of linear career pathing and just climbing the ladder is we're finding that it's not the right fit for everyone, right? Like some people, yes, that works. But the fact that we just prescribed that to all kids, at least when I was in high school, like just write it on a prescription pad here, Sarah, here's like the roadmap to a happy life. It's like, no. So that's what we're starting to see as far as like career agility and being able to take more of your skills and expertise in industries and parlay it into other types of jobs and portfolio careers where you're doing a lot of different things or even gig economy type of work. And it's, to me, I think it's really refreshing because the pressure, if I think back to the pressure to like, that I just felt, it wasn't necessarily coming from one person, but it was from a lot of different messages to like figure out the one thing that young, that's a lot. That expectation doesn't even make sense when we look at it from a purely biological neuroscientific perspective. Yeah. Look, I think that model's been dying for a long time, right? I mean, workers of the 50s started their career and worked for one or two companies in their whole career. My generation, I'm obviously older than you. We probably have five or seven careers over the course of jobs, over the course of our career. Now you just see all sorts of things. I think, as you say, it's the gig economy. It's people going into business for themselves. It's people going in and out of the workforce To me, it's fascinating watching this play out. And at the same time, it's still kind of operating on the fringes in terms of broad numbers. And the reality is that most companies are still out there looking for somebody who they think was going to come and work for them for as long as they want that person to work for them. And it just, it's, that to me feels like where the rub is right now. And it's, as I said, it's interesting watching it play out and companies are having to adapt. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. It's one of those things that like the old way, if we think about it, really, once half pensions evaporated and like those as rare as a unicorn these days, like once those evaporated, the incentive for us to dedicate our careers to a single employer or to, like you said, like that went away along with it. And so if we think about the model of the long-term stint in these jobs, who does that benefit most? It benefits the company most from the standpoint of like, let's say though, I'll caveat this by saying that for some people, you may love that and you may have awesome opportunities in a place and you may be growing and like 10 years in a job is awesome for you. That's fantastic. But at least from like the women I've been talking to, they're hitting a point of like, this doesn't fit anymore. Like I'm expanding more, I'm growing more. I know that I need different. This doesn't work for me anymore. And so when you have this 
kind of like the people (laughs) having this common experience of like expanding beyond the bounds of their employers. To me, you're absolutely right. Employers are going to have to learn and figure out that is just going to be the name of the game. As we watch more people do it, seeds become planted and more people are following suit. That's why I think this is Sarah's hypothesis, but we saw the great resignation was led on the front end by Gen Zers or yes, Gen Zers and millennials. But then we saw that more Gen Xers and baby boomers were coming into the fold as time went on. And so I completely agree that companies that see that this is changing. And that's what McKinsey said. They said a structural change to the workforce in a study that they did that came out in July, a structural change to the workforce. This is not an episodic blip. And the co-author, Bonnie Dowling, said, we are never going back to the way things were in 2019 work-wise. So I know that they want to put the binders back on and like, let's get back in the box because it worked well for them. But this burgeoning grassroots movement around having more control and flexibility and how and when we work and all of those things is changing the game. Let's talk a little bit about people who are quitting. Well, and who aren't, right? There's a lot of buzz in the media recently about this idea of quiet quitting. In some ways, like it's a new thing. I mean, if you look back at Gallup data, I mean, Gallup data for decades has been saying that only 30% of employees in the United States are engaged. Yeah. Work. So I would argue quiet quitting has been going on for a long time. What do you think? I completely agree. I also had come across a funny post that was like original quiet quitters were, or quiet quitter was like Ron Livingston from Office Space 2. Like, if we're really honest, like that was quiet quitting, or I guess he was almost even like loud quiet quitting with as bold as he was with it. But it's just like, it's not a new thing. Disengagement has been an issue for a long period of time. What I think too is interesting is that quiet quitting is a spectrum there's been no 100% right because with any sort of like buzzy trend or media term like this, no specific definition that says exactly what it is. For some people, quiet quitting just means I'm putting into place like regular boundaries around my work. Legitimately, you'll read with the anecdotes in the media and that's what people are saying. On the other side, it is more of that extreme sort of checking out. And for me, like on this side, if you're just setting boundaries that you've needed to set for a long time, like good for you, you do that and take care of yourself as somebody who has been through health crises and just realized like it's not worth it, then good for you. But if you're on this side of the spectrum and you're just going to continue showing up to a job every single day that is breaking you down, wearing you down with increasing force, it's like, to me, that's not the solution. And so that's actually where I'm taking this work from Raise Your Eyes, it's becoming a book and more of guide to conscious quitting, which is being very intentional about walking away at work, but knowing that is in your career tool belt when you need to use it. Because that was the fascinating thing that came through in my interviews with women is that the red thread woven through all of them was that women were saying they knew, they just like, they just knew they needed to quit and walk away. And I was so fascinated because I'm like, this goes against everything we just talked about as far as like logic and rationality and reason in establishing our careers and security and stability and all those things that we had been taught, this conventional wisdom. But women are making these major life decisions on more of a gut instinct, even if they did spreadsheets to like build budgets or crunch numbers, pro-con lists, or talk to people to get their their opinions. Those were secondary exercises and more of mental gymnastics that 
were not as important as them just knowing. So that was fascinating to me. And if we know so much that we're quiet quitting on the far end of the spectrum, why would we want to keep showing up day after day, spending our crash time and energy at a job we've quiet quit that badly? To me, it's an opportunity cost question of like, what could we be doing if we chose ourselves and walked away, even though it's hard to do? It is a sad state of affairs. I mean, recognizing that a lot of people, they don't have the financial freedom to walk away. They can't afford even a week without work. Other things factor into play. But man, it's a sad thing to think that you have people out there who are literally miserable at work and still showing up every day and just grinding their way through it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's like, we know the toll of that kind of stress. Like if you're living that way, in a way that you're so unhappy and experiencing, especially with like toxic work cultures, the Surgeon General actually just came out with guidelines around toxic cultures and how the impact that it has on our mental and our physical health, like that's a choice that is robbing you potentially of good, healthy years later on down the line. The thing that fascinated me too, is that when I put out my call for stories for Raise to Rise back in, I guess it was late March, early April, I had an equal or nearly equal, we'll say, number of women reach out to me during that time, not who those who hadn't just quit their jobs already, they were stuck and curious about this movement and the conversation and wanting to share their career struggles. Like these were women who hadn't quit yet, but felt stuck. And these are women who didn't even feel like they could quit a corporate job to find another corporate job. And so I'm talking like no even gap in between Women were running up against, I could see them talking and telling me the reasons. And to your point, like I thousand percent agree. There are times in our lives and our careers where circumstances are, it's like gravity, right? Like money and gravity, very real. This is no encouragement to be whimsical about it and to not care for those responsibilities, be fiscally responsible at all. But watching like brilliant women who I know could get a job somewhere the next day, tell me all the reasons that they couldn't and they weren't even financially related. It's like, okay, there's something to this that we're missing. If we are so unhappy and we're going to stay and we don't think we can make that leap and it doesn't have anything to do with, we're afraid we won't be able to pay the bills next month. Like this is like an erosion of female potential that is happening when we're just quiet quitting and staying disengaged somewhere. Yeah. So for the people who do take that leap, what have you learned from them in terms of the process, like the process up to the point of quitting, the process of quitting, what happens after quitting, all of that? Yeah, it's been so fascinating because what I started to see as I talked to people is that we all go through a very similar journey. And it's a bit like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. So at least for the purpose of Brace to Rise, it's, I call it the heroine's journey. But honestly, I just did a TV interview for a national TV show called The List. And we talked about it from the standpoint of women and men, because like we all go through these stages. And that's what the producer was saying, like that he and other people in his office are having these conversations. These are universal stages that we go through. And the first is really that rumbling. And this is where we're starting to see the misalignment and starting to get little signs that maybe we're not in the right place. It can manifest physically for sure. But that's where we're starting to think like, "Uh uh-oh, I think this may not be where I'm going to be able to stay. This might be a situation that I'm going to have to change. Then the second step is knowing. And that is really where we do come to that realization of like, this isn't going to work out anymore. You can have these like a lot of little rumbling signs, but then you do come to this point of knowing. What happens though, is that we can know 
and feel like we don't have, to your point, the capabilities, resources, et cetera, to move into the third stage, which is decision. And so what we can see is that people will sometimes end up bouncing around in these stages on the front end of this journey. I go from knowing, and then I bounce back to rumbling because it's like, I think I can fix this or like, oh, I'm not ready to look at that, et cetera. So you can end up kind of caught almost in this bit of purgatory, even where you could get to decision and say, well, I'm not going to leave. I just can't. And you bounce around. What we start to see is like from a physical standpoint, and that has been come through loud and clear with burnout being as high as it is during the pandemic, that like, When something isn't good for us, our bodies and even our emotions, like we know when things are not working. So the first three steps, again, are rumbling, knowing decision. And then we have action, which is the definitive quitting of the job. And the important thing to know is between decision and action, what you're doing, if you're consciously quitting and not knee-jerk quitting, which we need to be careful of. There have been various surveys that have found anywhere between 20 and 70% of great resignationers regret their move on the other side. And there is hypothesis from her research that these, it's not so much born out of like the quitting itself was the wrong thing, but more that we hit a breaking point and we're making decisions not to go to the thing that is next in our careers that's aligned with what we want work style-wise, culture from a values perspective, the kind of work. It was like people were seeing big dollar signs as other people were switching jobs and getting a bunch of money and stuff like that. To me, I believe that when we don't make conscious decisions about where we're going next, we are more likely to have that caveat emptor on the other side. Buyer beware and buyer's remorse, right? So we have to be really thoughtful about planning what that's going to look like. We're thinking about timing our exit strategy, our next move, how we're going to tie up loose ends and leave in a graceful way, all of those things. Then action is actually putting it into play, quitting the job. Then you have after effects. And this is the thing that I think also comes into play with the regret is that we with this sort of linear idea of careers and things like that, have not shown ourselves or taught ourselves a model in which like you may go to the next place and it can get you closer to ultimately where you want to be if you're being a conscious architect of your career and you're making intentional decisions around those things I talked about, lifestyle, values, type of work, et cetera. Even if you're doing those things, you can end up in a job next that isn't good for you. And I think I'm a perfect example of that, that I went from one organization to another and I could sit there and say, well, I wish I hadn't moved to Florida. I wish I hadn't made that move, but I don't regret it. And that's what I think we have to remember is that we take that step. We can't control the fallout and the after effects can be good, bad, or ugly. So planning and knowing that there will be after effects is a really important point of recognition before we go on this quitting journey. And then the final stage is assimilation. And that's where we're on the other side. We are, the dust is settling. We can look out (laughs) and up from the rubble and we can see what has come from the decision. And even if we don't like where we've landed, it's like, okay, I've built some skills some resiliency. I know myself better in what I want. I can start to figure out that next step even better because I have more data collected as far as what I like, what I don't like, et cetera. So it's really important to actually look at it like a journey as with any sort of big things in life, right? Like anytime we make a major life decision, it's a gamble from a risk standpoint and we can do only so much to mitigate the risk and that's okay. I just deeply believe from these conversations that if we're following our knowing and we're being conscious architects of our careers, even if it's a messy, nonlinear path, we will be moving in the direction of greater fulfillment. 
Yeah. Let's talk about the other side, the people who don't quit. Yeah. Why do so many people stay yes. in jobs that they don't like? Yeah. Financial yes. reasons aside. Yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, that is the number one most ruthless constraint is financial reasons. So like, absolutely don't want to ever discount that. It's really important to know that for many people, that is number one. But you pull that out. I found essentially three categories of roadblocks that can keep us stuck. The first being fear. And fear is very wily and cunning because we can tame fear in one avenue and see it pop up in another. So it's like a game of whack-a-mole because it could be that maybe I did have financial concerns about making the leave, but I was able to crunch numbers and I feel really good, either the new salary in the cop package at the new job, or I have enough of a cushion to start up my business or whatever it is so I can tame the fear there. But it could also pop up as like imposter syndrome, for example. Yeah. Like fear is biological response to keep us safe and to keep us from not having paycheck and being able to feed ourselves. It's a survival tool. So it's very real, but it's just fascinating that it can show up in many different iterations. The second is really around conditioning and sort of societal expectations of what others will think. We can be really worried about like, especially for women, for example, a lot of the female conditioning, good girl conditioning is around being obedient and rule following and taking care of others first, putting your needs last, et cetera. Again, older perspective, not so overt these days, but even those covert messages have like long tail undercurrents that we're still managing. And so we can get in our heads about like, well, my family wouldn't want me to leave this job. I've worked on to build everything here and my family's really proud and I don't want to let them down. Or okay. it could be, what will my team do without me? They need me. I can't leave them behind. And it's like the conditioning, the shoulds, all of that makes us feel like we can't take the leap that we want to take. And then the third category, it's limitations of our biology, both our brains and our bodies. And our brains, that's like cognitive limitations, like biases and fallacies that could keep us stuck. So it could be like sunk cost fallacy. Well, I've already got the degree in nursing, it would be stupid of me to quit nursing and do something else because right. then I lose all of that. Or it can be like choice overload, for example, is a cognitive fallacy that's like, there are too many choices. I'm just not even going to do it. It's paralyzing me. So I'm just going to go back into rumbling for a while. And it's also our bodies too, in that when we're in really stressful situations, I was talking to a doctor who experienced this herself to talk. She like specializes in workplace stress and experienced a situation herself in which the pressure rises or the stress rises and our bodies adapt because they're brilliantly designed to help us survive stressful situations so we can stay in a stressful situation and not even realize that our baseline level of stress has gotten so high that until we hit that real breaking point, for example, like me and the shingles thing, yeah. we can still... Yeah think we're managing. Like she said, she gave the example of like the increase in blood pressure that can happen from stressful situations. Mm. She said, that's why in the medical field, it's heart disease and like heart attacks are monikered as a silent killer because you don't know how much your blood pressure has risen until it hits like a bad level or really kind of like critical point. Or of course, if you go to the doctor and you find out, but like that sort of thing of our bodies just trying to adapt to keep us safe in these stressful situations can also hold us back because if our body was freaking out a lot sooner, we may have more awareness more quickly that we need to leave. So you describe Raise to Rise as a movement. Sounds like you're working on a book. Where else do you see this movement going? What are your plans for the future? 
the biggest thing first and foremost, because it just became, as I had these conversations with women, it just became so clear that the toolkit is missing in this space. And so when it comes to quitting, for the most part, talking openly about quitting a job can be seen as uncouth or taboo for those outside of the TikTok generation. It's amazing to me that during the pandemic, we've now seen people like live quitting on TikTok, which is just bananas. But for a lot of women, like that permission hasn't been there. And for example, I was having, I had an awesome conversation with two women the other night, both of whom are still working in their 60s and 70s. And they feel the same thing to even close to retirement. Like they're sick of the toxic cultures and feeling joyless because like one woman was talking about workplaces and jobs that break our spirits. And it's like, this is a transgenerational thing even that is happening here with women in their 20s. Talk to women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s now. And so it became abundantly clear that a toolkit is needed. So with the book, there's a toolkit I'm working on that will be an online toolkit. And that's really the starting point because it just became like, this is what I wanted and needed when I was feeling so empty and alone, being like, I did all the things. (laughs) I checked all the boxes, got the C-level job. Why am I so miserable? So yeah, just want to help other people not feel like that. Or if you are, no, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Yeah. So let's go back and talk a little bit about your background. So clearly didn't sit in your childhood years envisioning that you were going to become the conscious quitting guru, right? So what did you see that foresee yourself doing when you were kind of coming through your teenage years and college at Arizona State and maybe in early years after? When I was very young, there were many, many young women around that time who wanted to be a marine biologist. And I thought that would happen. But it's funny, earlier today, I had a big deadline yesterday. So I was like, I'm going to go to the nature center nearby. And here, because I'm right by the beach, it's a nature center with all these fish. And I just had this moment when I was there, when I was like, I'm not the marine biologist, but I now live within like seven minutes of a free aquarium kind of marine place, like where they rehab turtles and stuff like, okay, that's pretty cool. We're checking off that childhood dream for Sarah. The other thing too, is that I love books. Like that's the thing that's really funny too, with the book here too, is that like, I loved to read, I love stories. And so where that went for me then in my teens was journalism. And there was one point in time where I wanted to be a TV journalist. My aunt was, she was my role model from a career standpoint growing up, but she talked me out of it for a number of reasons. It's a hard job to do. Like her example was like, Sarah, if somebody's child has just been killed and you have to go stick a microphone in their face, like knock on their door and a mother's door and put a microphone in her face, would you want to do that? That sounds kind of terrible. So I decided not to go that route, but I was enjoying print journalism. I actually worked for a little daily newspaper when I was in high school in Northeast Wyoming, the Gillette News Record. And they were great for $5.15 an hour minimum wage. (laughs) I got to lay out pages, but they also let me do stories, like byline stories as a writer, not an intern. And I get to do like community and feature stories. So that's what I went to school. I actually went to the University of Southern California first to be a print artist. And then switched to PR because it was like, I think actually that might be a little bit more of the direction I want to go. I also loved marketing a lot and then ultimately transferred to Arizona State. Still got a journalism degree, but wound up doing a lot of PR. So it's now come full circle though, because it was like what goes back on after quitting that job. It was like journalism hat. Yeah. When you look back now, having been through this pivotal life event, right? 
that you've described and you think back to like your first years out of college, were there signs that you were heading down a bad path for yourself? Or do you look back and still say those were happy years? It just went wrong later. Great question. I love that question very much. My first paying job out of college was with Cold Stone Creamery Ice Cream. And I'd been an intern for them in Arizona in the PR and marketing department, which was the greatest internship on the planet because not only free ice cream every day, but they were so good to me. They saw that I was hungry and curious. And like, for example, the VP of marketing couldn't go do a segment, a kind of like a, I guess a paid, it was a sponsored segment with Jimmy Kimmel, paid skit, like product integration. And it was out in LA, it was going to be filmed and it came through last minute and she couldn't go. So they sent me and I went like, they'd ask me, the guys on the set asked me how long I'd been with Cold Stone. And I was like about two years. I wasn't telling them that I was even still an intern at the time. Yeah, I was an intern. I didn't tell them I was an intern, but it was like so amazing that they gave me that opportunity. And so I look back so fondly on those experiences, especially like I think it's a really cool thing when we as adults can look at those people coming up through the ranks and can see what they're passionate about, give them great opportunities. Like that is the most amazing thing that we can do in giving it back, right? So I don't see it then so much, but where I see it is more so I'm going to be going wrong with my overachieving and overworking from like high school, if Mm -hmm. I am really honest. I was like valedictorian in everything. I have actually... My parents cleaned out their storage when they retired a few years back. And I found my old high school planners. And we're talking like notes in the like tiny little corners of the pages because I fill the pages up completely. And it's not like they were notes for class. It was like all the things I needed to do because I felt like I just needed to do all the things. And so it's come really full circle to have to raise a mirror to Sarah and say... This isn't just about being a person who's passionate about life and wants to have an impact. This is like deeper. And to have to look at that and be like, overworking is coming from a place of identity and worth and shame and all of these things that I've been running from for years, if I'm honest. Yeah. And obviously a lot of people go through that. You've mentioned rumbling and shame. So I hear Brené Brown underneath (laughs) there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you're obviously doing a really different thing right now than you were doing in the years leading up your double resignation. What are the things that you still draw on from those earlier years, other than the journalism background that are helping you and what you're trying to do right now? JR, I love that question so much because since I left, it was nine months ago, Tuesday, yesterday that I left. And in that nine months, I have had so many moments of like, oh my God, that random thing that I did in my career is coming in so handy now. So I'll give you an example. I worked for a global hospitality company and I was in marketing. I was on a brand experience team, but the project, the program that I was putting together was a service training program so that we could teach frontline colleagues how to bring the brand to life. So it was essentially creating branded service behaviors and then teaching them through video training how to bring them to life. So I ended up doing these shoots, going on set at hotels in Nashville for 10 days, Charleston for 10 days. I filmed in Scotland. I filmed in London, like doing these really big productions and coming to have an awareness of things in the video production space that I never would have had. And now using that for Race to Rise and just things like that are just so amazing that if we look back at these Mm -hmm. like things that didn't necessarily make sense at the time, all of these threads can braid together 
to create a beautiful tapestry when, and yeah. this is a little bit my personal opinion, but like when we're getting to where we are meant to be and doing the work we're meant to do. Yeah. It's funny that you describe it that way. I will sometimes say to people that like, do you remember the movie Slumdog Millionaire where yeah. the kid basically draws back on all of these random yes. things that happened in his to life the questions. that allow him to be able to answer the questions. And I said, yeah. I feel like that in my job now that like, seemingly random things that I ended up doing yeah. over the year all kind of get strung together, use your word tapestry, into a tapestry that is helpful to me in doing my job. And I definitely didn't appreciate at the time that all those things would eventually come together in that way. And I think it is sort of, you get a sense of self-satisfaction that all those things that you're probably thinking at the time, why am I doing this? Or this feels kind of random. And then they come together and you're like, okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know. And as much as I realize it's like there's some hindsight bias in it when I say these things or have had those moments. But to your point, it is very empowering and helps you as far as like if we think about self-trust and the ability to do these kinds of things, to move in the direction, to blaze new trails that you haven't seen other people go on or you've been afraid to do for yourself. It is a really amazing thing if we are collecting data points that can point in the direction of like, yes, you've got this. You have what you need. You've been moving in this direction for a long time. You didn't just know it. And as much as maybe that is me telling myself a story about it, it's been brilliant. It's been really incredible. And wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, well, that's good. Who's influencing you besides Brené Brown? Whose work is particularly having an influence on you at the moment? Yes. As I started this book, so a few years ago, I had downloaded it on Audible, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. And it's very much in the space of like women and conditioning and societal expectations and like just doing what we need to do. And it was not something that resonated for me a few years ago. I didn't even finish the book, honestly, but it's so amazing. I listened to it a few months back, or I guess it would have been a few months right after I quit. And it was like, oh my God, I actually understand this. But that's the fascinating thing, right? Is like, as we grow and we start to give ourselves permission to ask better questions of ourselves related to, is this what I want? Is this the right thing for me? Or like, why do I want that job? Or why do I want that title or that salary or those things? But like dig into the motivation behind these things. We can actually start to see, was that something I picked up from somebody else? Or is that something that's true for me? Mm. And if it's me, then yeah, let's go get it. But if it's not, do I actually want to head in that direction? And oftentimes if it's not true for you, because it right, we can be taught things or be told we should do things and it. There can be alignment between those. And it's like, okay, it does actually make sense for me. That feels good. I'm going to do it. But anything that was told to us that we're just blindly doing because that's the expectation, those are the things that get us off track. And so for me, it was like my blinders were fully on when I downloaded that book at first. And so as they've started to come off and I've had this awareness of like, maybe the prescribed life that I thought I wanted is I've said, like, I honestly think I built a bit of a house of cards. It just becomes that like, we're able to grow. We unlearn more of the things that perhaps worked for others, but didn't work for, they don't work for us. And more we question and become conscious about our decisions or choices or desires, the more we do it. It's honestly like pulling a little thread on the sweater. (laughs) Describe it. It was like a little loose thread on the sweater. Like there's not much sweater left (laughs) anymore because it's a journey and an adventure. And I think it can be very destabilizing to do this kind of thing. But wow, it's really powerful. 
Yeah. And look, sometimes just in the way you're describing that book, sometimes you come across things that just, they're not at the right time for you. Right. Yeah, and, and then you absolutely. come back to them later and you're like, okay, now I get it. So yeah. how far are you along with the book and when's it going to be published? Well, so book proposal is what I just finished yesterday. So we're a ways away from that, but I'm really thrilled at the opportunity to find the book a good home with my agent. And yeah, we'll see where it goes from here. I'll definitely keep you posted. Great. Any final thoughts you want to share before we break? This has been amazing. And I would just say that if you take anything from this conversation, there are a lot of different opinions on quitting and all the things that are happening right now. I would just say, like, it's kind of the last piece we just talked about, like, get to know you and what you want out of all of this. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing or what's happening in the zeitgeist and the numbers of the great resignation. If you are where you're meant to be and it feels good to you, do that. If you're not, do something else because like yeah. we know that's what I think is my biggest takeaway from the interviews is like we know whether we're woman, man, however we identify gender wise, like we know what's best for us. We do. It's just really hard to hear it sometimes or to act on those knowings because of all of the cacophony of other yeah. people's opinions and voices and things. So yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. My first two beliefs in the career stuff that I've written about, one is you have to own your career. And the second one is start by knowing yourself. And as you say, there's a lot of advice around you and not all of it is helpful, right? Even the advice you get from your family and your friends, because to some degree, they're projecting their wants, their value onto you. And so you've got to figure it out for yourself. Exactly. Because there's a lot of things that come from other people that are very well-intentioned. Like think about that with the linear career path and climbing the ladder and chase bigger titles and paychecks. That's coming from a well-intentioned place, but it can be unconsciously past and absorbed. And we just, we think it's our belief, but when we get to know ourselves, that's like really where the magic begins. So I love that that's at the heart of your work as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing the show. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing the book when it comes out and I'm sure you'll continue to have enriching conversations with women as you continue to do your research and look forward to hearing and seeing more about what you're up to in the coming months ahead. Definitely. Thank you, JR. It's been great to be here. Yeah. Thanks to you as well. It was great having Sarah on the show today, and I'd like to thank her for joining me and diving into the great resignation, sharing her own story and those of the many others with whom she's spoken. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.